I don't know how to start this thing. <laughs> Do we have a guest today? I would, should we get to that? Maybe we should that hold that in the wings. Yeah, you don't <laughs> until um, the last until the last five minutes of the show. Yeah, this is something uh, we're. It's what's really great. Showmanship, about, Joe. Showmanship. What? what um, that's what you might call it. What, you should let what people human guess. Beings, hmm? You should let people guess. <laughs> right. That's apparently Christian's theory because I often want to introduce the guest early, uh-huh. and every time he acts like I'm being strange. I don't like the formal doing, introductions. It's not a formal introduction to say that we're delighted that Marissa Baradaran is here with us. Oh, now no one can guess. Exactly. Yeah, I like to spun a fun killer. <laughs> and, and I'm you, here to kill fun, and, not and you, create you, fun. You've already, you, I think, well, I don't know if you've ruined it or not, but the first segment of the show was going to be, how do we say Marissa's name? Because I think that this could like, I know you deal with Mrs. it all the Callum's. time and like, let's get it down on this recording. Any, yeah. Anytime anyone asks, you just point them to this recording and it's, you don't have to worry okay. about it anymore. Once and for all. Okay. This is the let, last let me, time. Multiple choice. Multiple Can I do choice. multiple choice? Yes. Did I do it wrong? No. Uh oh, I did it wrong. <laughs> A. MRSA. B. MRSA. C. MRSA. <laughs> D. Okay. Mirsa. Fair enough. Okay. The first is a staph infection. So I'm glad that <laughs> we're not going with that. The second B would be correct, which I feel like you knew intuitively because C Hold and on. D are ridiculous. I don't remember. Although, I don't remember. I don't remember B. Mirsa. 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 Yeah. What did I say before? I think you said that. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I've, I've heard Mersha, Marseille. Marsha, I have Marseille's heard. a nice name. Why don't you just go with gamut. that? Damn it. I, I, I will answer to anything that starts with an M, honestly. See, that, see that's why I wanted to go over this because I yeah. felt like no matter how we mispronounced it, you would probably you probably just go with it most of the time. I, I have college friends who I've known for 20 years who've been mispronouncing my name for that long. So, I, so when I, I say, just go with it, now it's embarrassing to correct them. Well, that's, see, but I don't want you to be embarrassed. This, <laughs> this is your chance to yeah. say you're saying it all wrong. And so when I say Marissa, are you thinking, uh, that's close enough. Like it's not worth correcting. Or do I have it like spot on? That is spot on. Marissa Ooh. is what I call myself. Yes. Can't do better than that. Yeah. No. You <laughs> now, what about your surname? Baradaran is how I pronounce it. Baradaran is right. So there is also the Farsi pronunciation, but I don't use that, and nobody uses that. So in Farsi, my name is Mersa Baradaran. Now, that, now wait a minute. That's what no, I was going for. That's see, the authentic but no, name. No, that's no. Not what she calls I don't call myself that. It is so confusing. Um, I go with an English pronunciation, and I always have. So mm. not even my husband calls me Mersa. You know, my so parents you kind of, do. You kind of adopted or adapted to your surroundings. So yeah. now that you're here in the Southeast, I don't see why you just don't go with MRSA. Yep. Yep. That's that's one option. <laughs> or Marsha. Marsha. Yeah. Marsha. Give me that's five right. years. I'll be there. Yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> no, to, to adapt to the South, it would be um, that people call you Miss Marsa. Miss Marsa. That's right. Now, that's we're lucky right. to have uh, Marsa here because... Um, so Marissa, I th- I, you are a, a famous um, uh, op-ed contributor, kind of a, a public intellectual, really, uh, an, esper- an expert in um, the postal service, um, in banks, That's... in the idea of banking, um, law. Uh, I don't know. what, what um, yeah. You're also – should we, is it okay? Now we can cut this out. I, I tend to cut stuff out all the time. Right, Joe? Not really. He, he, yeah. he always says he will cut things out. Yeah. I think it's fair to say – you know, there are two banking scholars in the country that are, um, you know, important, and it would be me and Elizabeth Warren. And I mean, <laughs> people, people nice. have ranked them differently. I mean, I probably right. think she leads me just a little bit, but, you know, 
everyone has their own opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and some people are right <laughs> in that right. opinion. And some people are not. That's right. <laughs> so so there is one thing I want to mention. Uh-huh. Um, well, we, we have a couple of things. We, we just have some housekeeping to get away, out of the way mm-hmm. up front. We, I think we've got some feedback and stuff like that right. and tell people where to find the show and everything. Uh, um, but um, if I wanted to make a list of the hundred coolest... No, don't don't do no. you, you know? <laughs> the hundred coolest yeah mormon women alive is that right living is part of it living right yes and you have to be mormon and you have to be a woman yes um and and presumably cool yes and you are uh i i looked at that recently we're gonna put that up yeah. in the show notes unless marissa tells us that we can't <laughs> okay um and you're ranked number eight on that list is that right it, that's right mm-hmm <laughs> That's totally great. Ahead of ahead and, of ahead of your sister, is that ahead right? Ahead of my sister, and I won't say this, but I believe the list is alphabetical. So isn't that a coincidence? Is, I thought that was amazing, an amazing coincidence. But yes. you're in the top ten. You, so yeah, you are. That's right. Top uh, ten. Yeah, I mean, Broderon does start with a B. But Broderon. So I they, I they put the numbers next to the list though. So I true. conclude you're the eighth coolest. It's true. Mormon woman alive. Cooler than Anne Romney and Stephanie Meyer. Oh, and way cooler. The new Olympian that just won silver in the. The skeleton, yes. Oh, well, that this was before that, though. Yes. Right? Okay. right. So maybe now she's number seven. <laughs> well, but... Worst, you're number nine. No, yeah. I think yeah. it projects forward into the future. I think yeah. this is a coolness essence. That's right. Now, right. I have to say, I, as I told you earlier, I'm a little bit worried, though. This list causes yeah. me a little bit of worry because, mm-hmm. I, you know, who doesn't want to get on this list? Yeah. And I can think of several ways you could get on this list if you're not already on it. So if you're not a woman, I presumably <laughs> it's going to take some kind of reassignment. Surgery or something, that, right? So, that seems like that would take out the Mormonness because I'm sure the church doesn't allow for that. So right. then you're off. You can't. All right. Well, if you're a man, you're off. I have no expertise okay. on that. We won't necessarily get into that. Maybe that would be a different show. Uh, but um, uh, uh, you have to be Not cool. Not that so I ascribe to that. I'm you just can, saying. You can try to be more cool or to take someone else on the list and mm. try to make them less, appear less cool. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. The part that worries me, though, is the mm. alive part. <laughs> um, right. This seems right. to set up bad incentives, and I, I worry right. about you. Have you have you gotten like a security detail Def- or anything since right. this? No, but I will tell you. After the op-ed, um, the most satisfying thing was to get hate mail. I got a lot of hate mail after the op-ed. Are you and it was kidding me? So flattering! It started immediately the night it was put up. I got maybe. Are over, you kidding? I'm not kidding. I got maybe total maybe 200 emails, and many of them were you are dead wrong you know you have no brain um i got taken down by breitbart on the blog the breitbart blog okay it was yeah. that was actually quite flattering where he said you know something like elizabeth warren and marissa baradron are just dead wrong and i just thought like that that is the nicest thing you could say to me <laughs> that, that, you, that you're as wrong as elizabeth exactly. warren right right yeah we should all be as wrong as you um, exactly um, that's 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 very interesting so yeah. of course we're referring to the new york times op-ed that you yes. wrote recently yes it was a new york times op-ed based on um the idea of postal banking Right. Which I'm happy to talk about. Now, why have you not written? We're going to, we, at some point, we will get serious okay. here. Yeah. Um, very serious. Because this is a serious podcast about law, Good. law school, mm-hmm. legal theory, <laughs> and other stuff. We're still figuring that out. But uh, so we will get serious. But, and, and so, 
Maybe maybe right now, because this is a serious question. Why have you not entitled any, any of these things going postal? You know what? Um, now, it, now, that doesn't endear you to the postal service, I know. I considered but, it. It was on a couple of revisions of the article, and every time, I think it was either my husband or the reviewer crossed it out with a red line and said, you may not right. use that. Yeah. You know, so, um, I mean, it does refer to murder, so it's... Yeah, mass yeah. killing is not just too funny. easy, It's I not think. funny. Yeah. It's not funny. But going postal, I... Is yeah. it, it has taken on a connotation beyond that? Yeah. Mm. The New York Times actually won't let you choose the title. So no, of course not. Yeah. And I actually didn't get it at first because the the title they, the chose title they chose was the Post Office Banks on the Poor, and I just it took me a good ten minutes mm. before I figured out. Oh, oh, okay. Banks on the Poor. Like, yeah, I, I don't like that poor. construction either because it makes yeah. it sound like you're using poor people. Well, that's yeah, part of what exactly. we're going to have to get into. Well, that's exactly. part of what, so to preview here, we're going to uh, so this is going to be a little bit about banking, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be boring. It, this is not going to be boring. I do not think banking is boring. Why do you even boring? think you need to mention that? Yeah, yeah it's not exactly. boring. Well, I, you know, it's all, <laughs> we have one strike already because this is a podcast about law. So, okay. you know, we that our audience and then is a little bit narrow. Law, and then we have like, banking into it. People are like, oh, maybe. Unless, but the thing is, they don't know Marissa. They don't know the interesting things you have to say in it. Apparently, apparently, what you have to say is interesting enough to get you know near death threats yeah. for what you they say. They also so. don't know how inherently interesting banking is to the functioning of actual modern life. Fair, right? Because if they thought about it for even a second, they would realize, oh my god, all the things I love about my quality of life come from the fact that we have an economy sophisticated enough to do things like have people save money, totally. have people borrow money, totally. have businesses borrow money mm-hmm. to cover X, Y, and Z. All right, well, let's get I right mean, into you it. You just yes. think about it, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh my god, we didn't have this system. We yeah. need to create it immediately. All right, yeah. so what's the problem? So let's let's just get right into it. We'll, we'll, yeah. Do you want to talk about the postal yeah. uh, thing? So So what is the problem? Um, so the post office banking, and I don't want to narrow it into post office banking because that seems, um, you know, it, it, it brings in institutional competency issues and why the post office, et cetera. Right. What I'm talking about is more of like a public option in banking, right? We have um, the skewed relationship with banks, right? The state subsidizes banks to the tune of over trillions of dollars. I mean, talk about any entitlement, any sort of public handout you want to talk about. It is dwarfed by how much money yearly goes to subsidizing large banks. Right. In what forms? What are the what so forms we have, of the you have, take? Well, you have FDIC insurance and you have um, interest-free loans from the Federal Reserve to all banks. And then you have ongoing bailout measures, right, from from 2008, but even preceding that, right? And so this right. is, there's so many, I mean, people talked about TARP, and that was a couple hundred billion, but outside of TARP, there was a ton of other programs that the public just didn't know about where the banks are buying up a lot of the, uh, sorry, the Federal Reserve is buying up a lot of these toxic asset assets from the banks that they still own. In, in, in effect, we nationalized um the majority of the banks in 2008. Can we can we back up just a second? Yeah. So uh, I think you know everybody listening to this. I want to back up too. Has a bank yeah. account and and does some banking, right? But yeah. maybe it would help just to break out kind of elementally. What are the services that banks provide, which are uh, kind of necessary for modern life? And uh, then I want to do a question about FDIC. Okay. Yeah, I think mine is mine is prior Yours to that. Is okay. Logically prior. Yeah. There, there's um. So I want to I want to break apart what banking is to you and me, and what banking is to the Federal Reserve and to the economy. So okay. to you and me, um, we put in our deposits and we get loans. 
Maybe. I mean, we don't, maybe we don't even get loans from the bank, but that's sort of secondary market stuff. I, I get overdraft to. protection. Does that count? Right. Yeah. So this is just basic transactional services. It can sure. be done by your credit union, your community bank. That, that is not a problem. This has been happening since the dawn of banking. Um, it's a really simple model with not that much. There's some risk involved anytime you have short-term demand deposits. In other words, you can walk into a bank at any point and get your money back. Right. And long-term assets. In other words, their loans are their assets and those are long-term and their liabilities are short-term, right? right? So anytime you have that structure- Can I break that out a little bit? Just yes. Because- so, so when you say that a loan is a long-term asset, what you mean is that they have the right to receive money in the future, yes. and that right to receive money in the future has a present value, yes. and they can write that down as as uh, an asset of theirs. And it could be yes. presumably bought and sold, as it often is. So yes. I'll, you know, I have the right to receive $100 a month for the next 30 yeah. years, and I can, you know, and that that has a present value yeah. which we can calculate, and yeah. I can buy and sell that right to receive money to someone else, and so it's an asset, it's a tradable asset. That's exactly right. right. Okay, and because of this structure, which just in is inherent in banks and you need it to be so because that's how banks can pool money and expand it, right? Banks are money multipliers. They take little money, they make it big money. They're highly leveraged, right? So they take your $100 deposit and they can make a $1,000 loan, right? Because the, because of the way the structure works. So because of that, banks are very volatile, okay? And we're talking about runs here, which happened all throughout history until FDIC insurance here in America and throughout the world. There is not a single central banking system that goes without federal deposit insurance. Now everybody knows about bank runs from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that was the era where banks runs, bank runs essentially ended was during the Great Depression when FDIC insurance was... And, and before installed. insurance, and this is you know the, the uh, uh, federal insurance on... Uh, the problem was that people would get worried that the bank was going to run out of money. Exactly. And you want to make sure you get your money. Exactly. And, and so it's a typical kind of tragedy to the commons. Like if we all will withhold a little bit, yeah. this will be fine. That's if, exactly but right. I can't be sure that you're not going to go get your money out. And since there's not enough money uh, in there to pay everybody at the same time, we're all going to run to the bank and we're going to, and then it's going to collapse. Yeah. And in banking, in my class, I call it individual rationality, which leads to group irrationality, right? It's individually yeah. rational for me to go get my money out. But if we all do it, that is an irrational behavior. We, all, we are going to tank that bank, which does not benefit us. It's a classic tragedy of the commons. Classic. So, so you say, you called it FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or yes. something like that. So, uh, but the but the idea that okay, you just described this problem. Yeah. Uh, that a group can behave uh, irrationally, uh, even if the individuals in the group are behaving in their own interest. Um, uh, so w what we do is we create a social solution to that, which says okay, we'll guarantee uh, the deposits in the bank up to such and such a number. Mm -hmm. So that even if the bank has a problem, mm -hmm. you won't lose your money. You, the individual depositor, and then the bank can put that sign on the door mm -hmm. that signals to people, we are, we, we have those kinds of accounts. Mm -hmm. They're insured. So your deposit won't be lost. And that, and it's interesting that you before called that a subsidy. Yeah. So what is the sense in which subsidy is the right word to describe the, the existence of this insurance policy, which is funded by taxpayers? Okay, so l l let me say a couple of things. It is funded things. by taxpayers, right? Um, or is it paid for by banks? It is paid for by banks. Ah, okay. It is paid for by banks, except it does run into the red. And when it goes into the red, it gets a loan from the treasury, which then is taxpayer money. Okay, so so essentially it's funded by taxpayers, but taxpayers, but... So, so let me back up one, one second. The reason why, and I just want to make sure we're clear on this. The reason why 
banks are susceptible to runs is what going back to what George you said about George Bailey. When people come to George Bailey to get the money, he says, "You don't understand how this works. It's not right. like I have the money in in the safe because I loaned there. it out because it's out, right? So banks operate on very minimal reserves, and the least, the less reserve, the more money they can make, right? The less they hold on to, right? The more income, and so in that, a sense, right? Every dollar sitting in a bank is wasted. Is wasted money, right. and so they try to go with as little, you know, as little down or as high leverage as they can. And that's the intention. In fact, we want them to do that. We it's like want not them only to do, do they that. do that, we want very much for them to do that. That's right. But that's the that's that was the, Darcy, by the way, folks. Yeah. That's the tension that regulators have, right? Banks, it's in their individual interest. It's their incentive to highly leverage and and but the FDIC insurance fund wants them to play safe because then otherwise they're on the hook, right? Right. So so the reason why I call it a subsidy is it's not just if it were just FDIC insurance, I think that plays out just fine. But it's not just that, right? So so banks without well, let me, like, can I stop yeah. you? Mm-hmm. So I mean, the sense in which it's a subsidy, right? If you think it is, is that the government is providing mm-hmm. some assurance to everybody else. And the mm-hmm. reason that I will go to my bank mm-hmm. rather than, you know, decide that it's mattress time for my mm-hmm. money mm-hmm. is because I have some confidence in the bank, right? And the bank can't supply all that confidence on its own. And instead, the, the government is coming in and providing some assurances. And that's a kind of, uh, a, and that's a kind of subsidy, right? Yeah, I, but, I've but said it. Like, if the FDIC, mm-hmm. though, if you're, if, if what you're saying is that, uh, if that, that alone may not be a subsidy. So the, then the question is if, if all that the banks need to, reassure customers is some insurance uh-huh. why isn't that privately provided like yeah. there would be a market for it and if there's not a market for it presumably there's some subsidy right yeah so let me let me back up i always say you know trust is the currency of banks right without trust um they don't function and 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 here's the thing we've tried private insurance we've tried state insurance and yeah. nothing is large enough you have to be able to print money to insure banks. No right. country, no at no point in history have we been able to privately fund insurance. And when states have done it, California's tried, every state has run out. When you have a major crisis and you need that liquidity, you need a, a federal backstop. And so it, it could be, and, and a lot of times um, banks have asked for this when they want the government to back off during the 1980s and 1990s when they said, we want to be totally deregulated. Everyone was saying right. no FDIC insurance. But the, the tragedy of what happens at this time is the federal government says, no, we're going to insure you. Oh, but we'll also deregulate you, right? So what I call the social contract that was established in the New Deal, which is we will fund you and we will subsidize you and we will instill public trust, but you will stay safe. You will separate banking from risky activities that erodes in the 1980s, but only half of that, right? So let's, I mean, I want to emphasize that again, because yeah. I, I love that phrase that you use. You, you have a whole paper about mm-hmm. the social contract, which mm-hmm. we're going to link up in our show notes. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, so the idea is, right, and, and that the banks are not uh, somehow developed out of um, um, the natural order of things mm-hmm. in a market. There's not you know, some free market mm-hmm. out of which these things kind of naturally arise and do their jobs. Instead, mm-hmm. in order for them to function mm-hmm. well, they need to exist in a in an economy that where there's some collective entity providing assurances. Otherwise, experience tells us they don't they don't work mm-hmm. very well. That's right? exactly right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you're saying that um, there is a yeah, and you say social contract because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, there's not a legal document. Mm-hmm, At mm-hmm. least there's not one legal document, mm-hmm, which both parties sign. Mm-hmm. But there is a, an agreement and it's mm-hmm. implicit in the order of our economy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That the banks get this, uh, the, the, the key, as you say, the key currency of trust mm-hmm. 
provided in part by them and their reserves and other things that they do and presumably the order with which they normally govern themselves, but also from the government that if, uh, if, if everything breaks down, the government will print a bunch of money and things will be okay or at least uh, yeah. less bad than they could have been. But if the government so, – so that's some subsidy, but we want something back, right? Because this is not – you know, you're not doing this all on your own, right? The banks didn't build this, right? They didn't right. build this trust, right? right? right. right. And exactly. it's also about risk too, isn't it? I mean it's not just that you, you, you want something back because it's a fair exchange from a static point of view. It's, it's, it's still ultimately going to be about risk management. Yeah. So you, if you've got someone – it's like, sure, I'll loan you the keys to my car for you to go do your grocery shopping. But first, you need to put down your loaded gun and your fifth of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, I don't exactly. want you doing that while you're driving my car. Yeah. So, so, it's, I- so it's it, because it's about risk. I don't mind loaning it to you because yeah. it makes you see you. But it has to be good for me too. That's a way of saying what Marissa was trying to say before I rudely interrupted her, I think. No. Right? Which is that you, we're going to make you separate your risky activities from yeah. this thing, right? I actually think there's three different things that we ask and this is what i i mean i they're they're, they kind of run together but i separate them out because that's what you're supposed to do in law review papers and so i think there's three things one is safety and soundness risk right you keep your risks away from your um you know regular activities and thereby you protect our investment our subsidies so that's safety and soundness. two is consumer protection we taxpayers are funding you you cannot return around and screw us with these onerous terms with you know usury and things like that so there's a consumer protection element and the third and i think more controversially is you provide credit and and part of it is not controversial part of it is absolutely explicit banks are intermediaries the reason why we subsidize them is because we as individuals and we as businesses need credit we're not all we don't all come from you know, huge endowments of wealth. And if we want to buy a house or go to school or increase our social status, we need money and, and we need loans. It'd be a little bit like, I, I don't know, in the in the early days of the telephone and mm-hmm. we were running all these wires and telephone mm-hmm. wires. And, and imagine that for whatever reason, it, were, it was kind of necessary to secure these wires by policing them. Maybe people were always cutting them down or maybe we were about birds landing on them. Mm-hmm. And so you need a lot of like infrastructure. To, but everybody's saying, boy, the world will work so great if telephones connect everyone to everyone else. Mm-hmm. And then, and so we do all that. We pay for all of the security around the telephone wires. And then, what do you know? The telephone company turns around and charges like a thousand dollars a month for telephone service because that's the profit maximizing point, yeah. and all the poor are cut out. Right? Exactly. Is it a similar? I mean, exactly. I, I come up with crazy examples. It's what I do. No, but, that's you know. right. That's right. And so now we have. Um, I've made the statement once that look, we have the most heavily subsidized banking sector in our history. Right? In you know, throughout our history, it's unprecedented that the government has this much investment. And at the same time, we have the greatest number of people left out, right? And when we're talking about people who are left out of the system, it's not 10, 15. It is 40% of Americans who don't have access to banking services, which means that in order for them to get credit and other financial services, they have to go to a very unregulated, you know, what I call the Wild West of banks, right? It's payday loans, check cashers. They pay a, a huge chunk of their hard-earned money to just Cash a check. So, so right? is that 40%? That's 40% of Americans who basically operate on cash? Or do they, or is that no checking account? No. Yes, no bank account. And, and so, I mean, uh, you hear that statistic. Um, a person might hear that statistic and say, 
Well, that's odd. She said, I don't have access to banking. Just like go, just go to the bank. Yeah. Like go walk to the bank. Yeah. Um, and so is there an answer to the question, why are they just walking down the block to the bank? It's so complex. So first of all, um, I should say it's unbanked and underbanked. And underbanked means you may have a checking account, but when you need financial services, you primarily rely on outside of banking services, right? So you may have a checking account. But it's just sitting there. When you need a loan, you can't go to the bank. You go to the payday right. lender. Or when you have to cash a check, you'd rather go to the payday lender. So there's a couple- Can you of, tell me what payday lenders do? Payday lenders. So if you have a paycheck, let's say you're in the military, and the military uses these a lot, right? So you have every month you're getting, you know, whatever, let's say $1,000 just to keep it simple. Right. Um, you need uh, $500 that month, and you've run out of your paycheck. Your car breaks down. You need just a $500 loan. You go to a payday lender. They- um, attach, they sort of secure your next paycheck. You promise it to them. You write them a check, okay? Right. And and then they give you that loan a, a, until your next payment comes in. So when it's advance on your paycheck. Advance on your paycheck, basically. Um, they secure it. And they only deal with you. They don't deal with your employer, right? No, but you, pr- you give them that check. Because I want to ask you about something later. We yeah. talked about this, Joe, didn't we? We did. Yeah, okay, go ahead. But then yeah. you also pay, so if, to take out a $500 loan, um, by the time it's said and done, you may end up paying like $3,000. I mean, the interest is phenomenally high. There's fees. If you roll over at all, meaning you can't pay this month, you got to pay next month, they add on fees to that. So it just becomes um, a, a huge sort of, you know, millstone around your neck, these these debts. The, the average person who goes to a payday lender ends up staying indebted for six months. I'm going to do something year. wonderful right now for my friend Joe. <laughs> I'm going to play Adam Smith on this podcast <laughs> he constantly calls me adam smith and i'm not this, this I, is not the, constantly yeah. you asked last time politely not to be called adam smith and, and i just brought it up I'm again not a bully. At, within two words of my name Jackass. you don't even want it near your name i don't well so here's here is my here is my argument mm-hmm. um well i so maybe this is not mine but let me just mm-hmm. make this argument and uh, you know exactly what i'm going to say mm-hmm. uh, but uh maybe this is the best way to do this mm-hmm. so um the problem is that the that there are many Americans with low incomes who are uh, um, who are restricted on a cash flow basis mm-hmm. month to month, and uh, the risk of loaning uh, to that group of people is high because a lot of them default mm-hmm. um, and don't end up paying back the loans. And so, to service them at all, you have to charge high interest rates. Mm-hmm. And the reason you charge high interest rates is to make money, despite the number of loans that go unpaid. So, mm-hmm. the people who actually pay back their loans, of course, are in a way subsidizing the people who don't pay back their loans, who mm-hmm. face maybe longer-term mm-hmm. credit consequences. But among this whole group, payday is the only way. So, it's not clear mm-hmm. what the negative consequences mm-hmm. are at that point. Uh, anyway, so it, it costs a lot of money to lend to that group because of all the unpaid loans. And so, is not the answer. Um, I've read your thing, so I know. What, mm-hmm. I think I know what you're going to say. But anyway, but is not the answer to this puzzle that um, payday lenders charge these really high interest rates because of the high risk of individuals, and that's the same reason that normal banks don't offer loan services mm-hmm. to this uh, group, which is maybe it's as much as forty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what's wrong with that that's, argument? I mean, it is it is dead on in an economic analysis. So um, yes, if you have less income, you are by nature more likely to default. In, because you have less of a buffer, right? 
You right. don't, you don't, that's why you need the loan is you're running short on cash. And so you're, you're tight, you're stretched thin. And so mm-hmm. you're more likely to default, go bankrupt. Um, so yes, given the market, you do have to charge higher interest for higher risk of default. Um, so, so there's two answers to that. One is the current rate of interest. There's a lot of economic data on this, but it's not totally conclusive. So I don't want to put that out there fully. Yeah. What's currently being charged is over and above what the risk premium should be according to pure market terms. And there, and there's some data to, I mean, there's some just obvious data to support that. I mean, the payday lending industry is phenomenally profitable. I mean, phenomenally. Most Wall Street mainstream banks are invested in payday lending um, operations because they're, they're increasing their revenue. So, so in that way, it's not, they're not just covering the cost. All right. Well, then the Adam Smith is going to come in again and say, "Well, how does this? How does this happen? If if they were, yeah. uh, if it's so profitable, competitors will come in and undercut. If it's above the by asking for less interest, by asking for less interest, if, yeah. if the rate of interest that's being charged is higher than what's necessary to cover non-performing loans, then someone will undercut them. Right. So what's and pretty the entry soon, barrier? Or exactly. So what's the anti-competitive story? The that's anti-competitive really story is. Um, I think in the banking um, sector and, and among lobbies and things like that. So Walmart wants to do this, wanted to do this. In 2005, they wanted to come in, open a national bank, have loans, check cashing as a loss leader, bring people into their stores. Walmart consumers are largely the low income. I imagine this 40% mainly shops at Walmart or at least has some relationship to right. Walmart. Um, and and the they bank- have many physical locations. Walmart has exactly. many locations, and so they could reach the people who would participate. Yeah, this seems like a great idea. What's exactly. Um, and the banking industry essentially said, no, um, you you cannot have a commercial lender that owns banks. And there are there's plenty of sort of... I know, didn't know they had that power. Well, they didn't have that power. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a loophole that Walmart was trying to... So, so uh, there's a banking law that says a corporation, a commercial firm can't own a bank. But there's a loophole because every other commercial firm who's wanted one up until Walmart applied was able to get a bank. But when Walmart applied for it, they shut it down because of these anti-competitive concerns. So this is a loophole in the regulation? It was a loophole in banking regulation. In the banking regulation. So, so this is for, you know, not all our listeners have necessarily been to law school. But, you know, mm-hmm. so there are statutes. Those are the mm-hmm. things passed by Congress. Those statutes uh, either will will set forth particular duties, which are the law, or uh, or they will... Uh, um, give uh, authority to various kinds of agencies, uh, whether independent or not, to m- make more specific laws or to define mm-hmm. terms which are in the statute. And so a lot of banking is done by regulation, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's some statutory authority yeah. for uh, – and what are the agencies involved in making these regulations? It's the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, there's state regulators, and there's the OCC. It's – Lots of lawmakers, right? Lots of lawmakers. You can be a bank and and have five different regulators. (laughs) It's incredibly complex. OCC is Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Yes. There used to be an OTS, Office of the uh, Thrift Supervision, and Dodd-Frank shut it down because it was a captured agency. The OCC is also widely regarded as a captured agency, captured by the banks, of course. Um, Agency capture is a typical term people use to describe what happens when – the people regulated become so cozy with the regulators that the regulators end up reflecting the interests of the regulated parties rather than the public interest. That's right. right. And the OCC, um, they fund themselves through fees that banks pay. And you can choose your regulator. So you could choose to be regulated by the Fed or the OCC or the FDIC. And the the only one that gets bank-funded uh, sort of profit is the OCC. And so, of course, they there's this race to the bottom on regulation, which we call, you know, 
basically yeah. more lax, they get more customers. Right, right. And mm-hmm. and because there, you know, there's a story, this kind of a political economy story mm-hmm. about agencies in general, not just in banking, that uh, – that they seem to value increasing the scope of their authority mm-hmm. or uh, their prestige. And mm-hmm. it, I'm sure this is all disputed. And we maybe another time we'll get into yeah. administrative law type things. Yeah. Uh, and that's, the, but that's kind of the story that you're telling of the OCC, yeah. right? That they, in, in order to enhance their prestige, they basically compete for regulatory customers. Yeah. And to do that, they offer enticing lax regulation, you say. Exactly. So let's, but let's go back to the yeah. payday lender thing. So let's say I, like I see, you know, I lived in Chicago for a while and I felt like I saw a lot of payday lender storefront type places in mm-hmm. Chicago. Like they just seemed very popular there. But if I had it, if I had wanted to start my own, like I hear the Christian, what Christian said before, right? I'm like, wow, those guys are making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I could charge a little bit less interest mm-hmm. and I would still make money and maybe I would get more customers. In other words, I could enter as a price cutter, mm-hmm. right? Which mm-hmm. is, you know... So why don't I enter and do that business? So what would stop me? Nothing. I mean, you arguably there are varying rates, right? There are varying rates in these things. Um, so there is some competition in the market competition. for payday loans. Oh, absolutely. There's some competition for payday loans. There's lots of competition. But the, the the thing is, none of these loans are subject to state usury laws, which cap interest where banks are. So they can, and they typically do. If you can, you do charge as much interest as you can get away with. Right. Um, and the reason why banks aren't competing is because they say of their, because of their regulation. But this gets back to the subsidy issue, right? Why are we subsidizing, you know, this huge banking industrial complex and not, and, and then these sort of 40% of the people who need the credit the most are being left out of this subsidy entirely and being serviced by unregulated lenders. But is this, isn't this, so to put it in another, you know, to use another analogy that maybe people are familiar with, you know, so um, ceilings on rent, mm-hmm. um, rent control, or other kinds of price mm-hmm. caps, right? Uh, you'll find a lot of economists who say that these actually end up hurting the very people you're trying to help because mm-hmm. when you cap uh, mm-hmm. prices, uh, that reduces the incentive to get into the market, mm-hmm. and it's other suppliers getting into the market that ends up reducing uh, the price of a good to its cost of production, right, If in yeah. perfect competition. And so actually by capping the price, you prevent that from happening and you prevent some kind of efficiency. So that's so again, I'm, I'm kind of confused as to what the story is by which that doesn't happen in the banking industry. Why do we need price? Because a, a cap on interest, a usury cap, right, is it's essentially a price, a price cap, right? Yeah. And so it's exactly the same as rent control or anything else, at least in form. Uh-huh. And if there's something different about banking, maybe that's part of the story. Or if there's yeah. some, you know, what is the anti-competitive nature of it? Okay. Um, I mean, so a lot of that just goes back to the founding of banks, right? This is Jefferson and Madison and not wanting banks to be um, these big sort of East Coast conglomerates that were going to own us all and all the right. yeomen and the farmers and things like that. But but I want to make the point, like sort of underscore it. Banking is not a free enterprise capitalist system. I mean, at, this is my response yeah. to Adam Smith. If only it were, you know, then, then we could talk about the market, but it is not a market, right? We are, we essentially nationalize banks, but it's private gains and public losses, right? So we, we don't have and have never had in the United States, except for a period of maybe 40 years, free banking, free market banking. And so that, that's sort of where I come back to is, Yes, the the poor have free market banking, but we all have subsidized banking, right. and that I think is um, is a fundamental difference between rent control and banks. I mean, loans and credit—it's just always been different. It's been special. There's this 
pivotal um, essay in banking in 1987 written by the Federal Reserve Chairman in New York. It's called Banks Are Special. And, yeah. and that's been throughout. Hamilton said it. Madison said it. Jefferson said it. Banks are special. It is credit is the way that we expand, we move. And insofar as one group has more access to credit than another, and in the early days it was Easterners and, you know, rich New Yorkers versus sort of farmers and the South, the South, you know, insofar as there's any differential, that is against public policy, patently. And so we just treat banks differently. So our libertarian-oriented listeners are going to are going to hear you describe the problem and are going to say, oh, well, the solution is less regulation, more free market. And it sounds like your solutions are a little bit more regulation, right? You believe in the social contract I, idea, well, right? I would love if we could have a system in which we could have a pure free market and no regulation. But it is – or I wouldn't say I, I would love it. I just think it is practically impossible. It, it cannot be done. Based on what we talked about before – um, bank runs, market discipline on banks is incredibly irrational and it's too painful, right? Um, and it's other people's money. Louis Brandeis wrote this great essay in 1933 called Other People's Money. And it's yeah. essentially, essentially that, right? You, you, it's not a free market because banks have your money. Because people's right? entire livelihoods exactly. can be destroyed in an instant. I exactly. Guess. And, and the, so the market discipline on a bank ends up hurting the market us too much. So is it the kind of thing where you want you want to solve that you want to in, in, introduce a little bit of stability and to do that it mm-hmm. takes kind of the the public fisc in order yeah. to back that up and then if we're going to do that we need some other regulations to make sure that you aren't going to milk the public right yeah. so mm-hmm. but once you start down that road then we need this other regulation mm-hmm. to fix this other part and pretty soon it's kind of a Rube Goldberg machine of regulations trying to hold this contraption together the problem is and this and Andrew Haldane is this brilliant legal scholar in England um the Bank of England and he talks about this concept. You, you would of the, say third behind you and yeah, Elizabeth well, well, he's yeah, British. So oh, okay, yeah, so British, different, US, different US. categories. Yeah, just exactly. but me and Elizabeth, sure. and then him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so he talks about the dog and the frisbee. Like when the dog goes to catch a frisbee, it doesn't think about the physics of it. It just jumps up and gets it. Right, just like the sim- simplicity. Yeah. Um, and in banking regulation, it used to be simple, and it, I mean, there's just this trajectory toward complexity. It used to be that. There was unit banking, right? If you had a bank in Athens, all of those assets, loans, deposits stayed in Athens. That was simple. It was ridiculously restrictive because if Athens all of a sudden, you know, starts losing money, that bank goes down. But that, but that was it very makes it, simple. It makes it hard to move capital around the country to exactly. where it's, it's needed more, more to right? More efficient. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we moved toward um, more, more sort of efficient but still rigid um, activity restrictions, right? This is the New Deal where. You can, banks can do this and they can't do this other thing. And, and so back then, nobody complained of too much regulation. It was just, this was a bank. The, the, um, there was, there's all this lore that if a bank's lights were on after 5 p.m., that was bad. So bankers were, you know, it was a, uh, <laughs> three, three model, something like you left at three o'clock to go golfing every day. I mean, it was just this very simple model, low risk. And there were very few bank failures during that time. From 1933 until deregulation, banking is totally This is not stable. unlike a lot of other kind of mm-hmm. uh, um, things that come out of the the New Deal and the Great Depression. It's I, I think yeah. to understand that mindset, you have to put yourself back in the time where people yeah. were desperate. They lost everything. Yeah. You know, there was uh, – and, and there was a hunger for stability, right? But that stability lasts a phenomenally long time. And so when people talk about too much regulation, what we have now is we've – 
basically deregulated the banks. And we have these very complex sort of monsters that are too big to fail. No matter what anyone tells you, they cannot politically and feasibly fail. And so now we have this patchwork of regulation that is, it is onerous at times. It's too lax also, but it's just Above all, it's very, very complex. You need a compliance officer, at least one in every even small bank. In Goldman Sachs, you have a compliance department, right? So you have to keep track of every aspect of Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank is like 2,000 pages and growing, you know? And so so it's that. When people talk about too much regulation, it's not because there's too many rules. It's just because... There's too many loopholes and too mm-hmm. many lobbies that are getting what they want. So it, it starts off saying, okay, banks can't use other people's money to invest it in the stock market. And then it becomes this five-page loophole except for if you're an oil company and except for – Well, obviously, if you're an oil company, exactly. all bets are I off. Mean, yeah. there's, you know, I show my class – This I is sh- America after all. Yeah, yeah, I show my class a National Bank Act that essentially said that. Like you can only do the business of banking, loans and deposits – that it's like a one sentence thing in 1933. It is now like eight pages long, um, in small print in the National Bank Act because it just it just allows for every loophole and every you know everything that someone's um, begged the legislature for. So is that is that the natural order of things here? And and I, I do want to get back to the postal idea in just yeah. a second. But is that the natural order of things where there's a crisis? There's a simplification which provides security. Mm-hmm. It's very simple regulations which mm-hmm. are maybe severe and mm-hmm. trade off stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, in favor of stability, they trade off efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then normal times return and and uh, and uh, interested parties find the appropriate lobbying target. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Congress. Maybe it's mm-hmm. the regulators. And they and and things get more complex because there are con- and then there's another crisis. And there's another contract, regulatory contraction and simplification. And it depends on how severe that crisis is. So like, mm-hmm. you know, this was a severe crisis, mm-hmm. which maybe was averted to a great extent, mm-hmm. right? But the question is how many people have to lose their life savings before it is, uh, you know, pitchfork and torches time yeah. and things really change. So you would hope that that was the case. And that was the case with the Great Depression because FDR seized it. And I will say this about Barack Obama. I, I mean, I jumped on that bandwagon very early. I was pushing Barack Obama when he wasn't even running for anything. Um, but he majorly dropped the ball on financial reform. They didn't even make an attempt to, um, to, to make it hurt. Not, not, not even an attempt. He, I think he just spent capital in other things. And I think he came not, that was not his platform. And then he brought in Larry Summers, which I think was a huge mistake. Larry Summers, Tim Geithner. These are sort of ideologically. Friend captured. of the show. Friend of the show, Larry Summers. No, oh, not, re- not really. <laughs> No. I, I, I thought you meant Tim Geithner was a friend of the show. Oh, yeah. he's no, not either. No, he no. is really a friend of the show. That's yeah, right. So, so no, but I remember this. Were... So I remember, uh, you know, when when the banks were in danger of collapsing, the question is, what do you know? What do we do that that leads to the least moral hazard and yet doesn't result in the destruction of America's, uh, you know, lending system? Yeah. And a lot of people, especially on the left, wanted to. Is it Sweden which nationalized the banks? Is that do I have There's the right a, country? Um, well, Iceland it, did, and um, I no. I mean, this I is a while Swedish back. Banks, this is before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, German then, banks, and, Canadian well, banks, and Obama directly mm-hmm. said. So a lot of people yeah, wanted. Yeah. Basically, some of this was going on during the Bush administration. Yeah. I mean, you, you guys are posted like the crash itself was in two thousand eight yeah, before yeah, no, he was even elected. I'm thinking of something yeah. in particular that Obama said when the option was still out there uh, to to do something a little bit different, mm-hmm. and because uh, what people wanted was basically to wipe out the shareholders of mm-hmm. the banks, mm-hmm. recapitalize yeah. them. Uh, with public money and mm-hmm. then spin them off 
Yeah. For, and then hopefully, comp- so the government would take a loss, but all the shareholders would. There's no reason mm-hmm. for the shareholders not to take a loss, is the Absolutely. idea. Otherwise, you have a moral, moral yeah. hazard. Exactly. Right. And in fact, a complete shave, mm-hmm. right? Right. If they lose everything. Right. And, uh, and that would be the nationalization mm-hmm. of the banks and then spending them off because nobody, you know, except for the crazy people, thought that the government actually wanted to run all the banks. Mm-hmm. It's basically you want to nationalize them in order to preserve it, the right incentives. Break exactly. Them up. Break them up. And mm-hmm. what Obama said, this is what I recall, uh, was that the problem was, and I think it was Sweden, that they only had like eight banks the mm-hmm. banking system was simply mm-hmm. too big in america to make that work i don't i don't know i don't buy I mean, it i don't buy it so so i mean this is the left and the right calling for breaking up the banks and this is so so i'm not trying to criticize obama because it's not something that was his expertise i think he relied on his advisors too much on this but um and and this is just my personal opinion but this was a golden opportunity and it does start in bush i mean the financial crisis starts in september and bush is a lame duck and obama i mean this is like his first day in office so this would have had to right. take a lot of guts like stepping into office and totally pissing off wall street the next day so so it is not surprising that he doesn't do it um but it was the biggest sort of missed opportunity in the last 100 years, right? Um, this- Where you just hit a big reset button yes. and you say there's all this cruft and pages and pages mm-hmm. of loopholes and a, and you just you, you yeah. hit reset so that you can flush a huge amount of junk yep. out of the system for a hard restart. Yeah, get rid of the OCC, break up the banks. So, so the thing is, I mean, if you remember the original Tea Party, not the Koch brothers Tea Party, but the original Tea Party, and then later the yeah. Owls, the Occupy Wall Street, I mean, those are sort of these populist movements that are very uncomfortable, both of them, with the bailout of the banks, right? That that right. was sort of the original. So I think there was on the right and on the left a real thirst for either let's go free market or break up the banks. You know, this bailout concept didn't make anybody happy. And I think... Um, Where you don't change s- anything structurally, you just hook up a fire hose of cash oh, yeah. into their fi- into their mouths. I mean... Gold- <laughs> and, they, but, and they get to just keep on making money because it's and all free. Goldman Sachs got 100 cents on the dollar. 100 cents on the dollar with their AIG. They no, I'm not, take- I'm not so good at math, but that's a dollar. That's a dollar. <laughs> yeah, that's a dollar. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. So no, no loss, um, no haircuts. I mean, yes, there are firms that restructure, and go bankrupt, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt the way it's supposed to hurt. Let's come back to the postal stuff because yeah. I think we've gotten pretty far afield mm-hmm. of that. But I do want to hear about these. Other well, this is this is a you know it's hard to talk about one thing without talking about I everything agree. because the question is why do we not yeah. have a competitive system that doesn't charge serious rates to the poor? Why is it not reaching mm-hmm. everybody? All that's I guess connected and yeah. And hopefully, and why don't we have a banking system where where most people are being served who want to be served by the to, who want these kind mm-hmm. of services? Okay, yeah. so Walmart's cut out because the mm-hmm. uh, regulated industry says we don't want the competition. Yeah. is that right? Yes, um, that's right. So, and so you have an alternative to Walmart, essentially, right? Well, yeah. So the the initial the reason why I brought up I thought of postal banking in the first place, um, and and I. I don't want to overstate my sort of importance in this. The U.S. did do postal banking, never lending, but we had a postal deposit system in 1910 during yeah. President Grant and President Taft's administration. So hmm. th- we do have precedent in that, but it was just sort of deposit taking. And but- let me just say this. Let me let me let me kind of uh, uh, um, um, you know give you give you um, what's the right word here? Uh, a little oral argument bump. 
Because you've got a really nice twelve pages is all that it is. Mm-hmm. This post it's time for postal banking, yeah. isn't that what it's called? Uh-huh. It's only like twelve pages, and if you want to hear the history of this and yeah. really dig into it just a little bit, yeah, it's a really good history of it. And it, you, you go into a lot of this in that paper, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So initially, I mean, my question as I was teaching banking, and we would study all these different banking forms, and the question that kept coming up after like three different semesters is we'd study the credit union and the savings and loan and these things called the Morris banks that were designed in during the New Deal, but that had roots before that just to service the poor. So the savings and loan comes up with a modern mortgage that allows people, low-income people or middle-class middle people to own a house. Credit unions are about workers and some plant getting together, pooling resources and giving each other small loans. They These are sort of supported by the national government with subsidies, with insurance, with all of that to let them thrive. And then they each, all three of these in, um, banks stop doing what they're doing in mass during deregulation. And it's because they essentially, they, the subsidies sort of stop. Banking gets changed all over the place during that time, not just sort of top-down governmental stuff. But What th- decade are we talking about? This is the 80s and 90s. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's where there's more interstate banking. And- there's more interstate banking. We open that up. There's capital markets. So mm-hmm. you don't have to invest in your local bank. You can go to the stock market. That's giving you a money market account. Essentially, your money is just as safe as it were in a bank, but you're getting interest. And banks can't give interest. I mean, there's a whole variety of complicated factors that I don't think we'll have time for. But basically, and banks, banks start offering investment services and other yeah. Kinds so of banks start getting open to all of this market competition, and they just panic. And that's why they ask for deregulation. So deregulation was partly necessary, right? But I think the extent of it ends up being um, uh, not good in the long run. But right. anyway, so so credit unions and SNLs just stop doing what they do. SNLs become like. This, the most corrupt of all banks. They become like Michael Milken's piggy bank during the 1990s as the, <laughs> you know, as they um, start, you know, using them essentially as money laundering operations, right? So, so anyway, these banks stop doing what they're doing. And so my question was, well, why and what can take their place? And I think that the, the similarities between all of these banks is they're supported by the federal government. They're subsidized by the federal government. They have a mission, and that is to serve a certain population. And they're innovative, right? They're using yeah. some new form of something to overcome that high cost of credit. This is when they were first created. This is when they're first saying. created, and this is why they're successful. Like, for example, the credit union, the reason why it's able to so – remember you said earlier that it costs more to give money to the poor? Well, there are yeah. ways to overcome that. And the credit union, the way that does it is – Look, we're all friends. We work together. I see you every day. I know the kind of person you are. So I can give you less interest based on your character. Ah, right? I see. So because, that's because, one way. because the person suffers a psychic injury by not repaying their friend. Yeah. And so they're less of a credit risk Social than if control. it were a faceless corporation. Exactly. And so they can afford to charge less. Exactly. Huh. The SNL um, also, they invent the, the mortgage by securing your house, right? Right. So, so that's an innovation. And the Morris Bank, um, invents sort of co-signers, right? You can come and get a loan, but just have someone else come sign for you, right? Oh. So, so these are all ways of making it more painful to walk away from a debt. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so so, so, so I note these three commonalities that they have, and I say, well, what can take the place? And so I actually suggest a couple of things, but the, the strongest suggestion I have had was the post office, and mostly because of, well, one, they were hurting, so I knew that there was a motivation, and two, because of location, right? Um, in the 80s, as these banks stop serving the poor, they leave all these communities, and it's hard to get them back, but the post office is already there. Yeah. Um, and like because there's this there. president. Physically there. This is why, before, mm-hmm. when I was asking you, you know, why why don't you just walk down the block to the bank? Yeah. 
There, it's not Bob, there. There isn't one there. Right. I mean, you could uh, you walk down the block, you're not standing in front of a bank. Exactly. You're standing in front of a payday lender. I don't even know if you see on Athens, right? If you go up up and down Baxter, it's all payday, pawn, loans. If you look at yeah. where the low income live and try to find a bank, you have to pass like five or so payday lenders, title lenders, we call them in Georgia because payday lending is not allowed, but title lenders before you can get to a bank, right? And it's like that around military bases, around any sort of project, low income area, it's sort of the perimeter is because the demand for credit is there the demand and the supply is there. we have sucks exactly right. yeah. and if you want to give if you want to increase that supply you need an infrastructure of some kind mm-hmm. and if there's an infrastructure yeah. that is already in communities mm-hmm. you know wow w- gosh what infrastructure is in every zip code exactly hmm. <laughs> what was that right. zip code again it's yeah. a postal code right and the, the third office. well and the third thing was that um it has to be supported by the federal government and that's where the post office also has a huge huge advantage and we're not talking about handouts here we're talking about Giving the poor bootstraps to pull themselves up. So you're talking about essentially a public option. A public option. Which would, uh, um, not a replacement for the private market and mm-hmm. credit, even mm-hmm. among the poor, uh-huh. but it would be um, run by the public, presumably at, at rates which were achievable. So yes. not so subsidized that it's welfare. That's right. Uh, maybe self-sustaining. And, it's, and and that's one of the arguments of the postal service is this is actually a profit center, yes. right? Uh-huh. Um but uh, so it would instill competitive discipline into mm-hmm. the market because whatever the competitive anti-competitive mm-hmm. reasons are that the if it's true and mm-hmm. you know and you you say you weren't willing to stake your reputation on the fact yeah. that this is true that uh, payday lenders charge usurious rates way above what uh-huh. the market price would be in a competitive market. Well, enter the postal service, which is going to be able to charge a rate which on paper will make at least some profit. Yep. Uh, and then to survive, these other uh, companies are going to have to get more competitive. That's right. Right. So That's what right. kind of services? Would you envision being offered at the at the post office? Well, they're envisioning um, the the gamut of financial services that the poor don't have access to. So we're talking about um, loans, small loans, which I think is the most important and crucial and These the are biggest un- unsecured market. loans. These are um, yes, they'd be unsecured loans. Um, although um, the federal government, and this is where they can bring down the cost of collection, they can garnish your tax returns, and a lot of people. Um, even the poor have these tax returns, right? So they can garnish wages, tax returns. This is just sort of federal powers that they have through the treasury that no other payday lender has. So it's and there's un- earned income tax credit, which exactly. is an incentive to file these, and you lose that if you don't. Yeah. yeah. So there's. Um, but I would think that why wouldn't having a savings account be the most important thing? You just said loans was really important. Why isn't having sa- the opportunity to save important? That 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 may be the case. I mean that that may it, to me credit is the biggest hole in the market. I think okay. most people can access Afford- savings. Affordable credit. Affordable yeah. credit. I think most people can access savings um, through a bank if you're motivated enough you can go to a bank and save um it's or you just, can stick it, stuff in your mattress yeah i mean so what i hear you the, the mm. this is what i would say right mm-hmm. is that uh um and and i think i got this from from reading what you wrote but uh what the poor don't have and i think even even those of us who actually have like parental safety systems mm-hmm. you know even if right. you, you even if you don't want to rely on it i mean a, a lot of middle class people have family support at, at least as a as a safety net absolutely but people who don't right they're one of emergency away from yeah. a whole cascade of financial failures. Right, so right. I'm $200 short and I can't pay this bill. Right. That gets shut off and now I can't do this other thing and then yeah. I can't do this other thing. Right. And 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 there's this yeah. cascade of problems. And so yeah. if you can, the idea is if, that maybe credit is important, not because we want people to borrow beyond their means, uh-huh. but 
to weather emergencies. Yeah. And if you can just weather that one emergency, maybe the maybe yeah. the family can you know keep kids in school and yeah. not do the you know, there's exactly. a whole bunch of problems that it's are solved. It's just a right? cushion, and you, I don't think we we understand people like you and I who are comfortable understand how traumatic bankruptcy can be. And maybe you you all do. I have not experienced it, but they basically say it's death of a child, divorce, death of a child, and then bankruptcy. Those are the wow. top three stresses yeah. in life. And so many people have to go through, you know, um, personal bankruptcy and it is traumatic. And, and to the extent that this can save some, uh, one family from that, you know, I right. think that's worth the effort. Yeah. The amount of, um, the amount of social capital that, that gets mm-hmm. shredded mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and therefore is a genuine loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a social loss right. when, as you just described, where you, one bad mm-hmm. thing happens mm-hmm. and your everything spins out completely from that because yeah. there was no margin of safety there. There was yeah. no buffer there. And just yeah. to get concrete, the transmission goes in the car. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. You can't afford to pay for it. You can't get access to credit. You can't get to your job. You get fired from your job. You know, right. it, it's the yeah. same kind of thing people were describing with health care, right? Yeah. That health care causes these bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. And so it's like setting off a bomb yeah. in the middle of a, in the middle of a, right. of people's lives That's and right. that means there's loss yeah. and it's just destruction it's not destruction to exactly. some higher end yeah. like oh i'm going to do without a little so that there's more later it's just it's just, it's just destruction yeah right um and so if you can find ways to make fewer of those bombs go off yeah why wouldn't you do that yeah. we're actually all better off yeah if there isn't if there aren't grenades blowing up our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers right. and our whatever, As right? As a society. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this fantastic Yale Law Review article about lawyering for the poor. So we've written by Stephen Wexler. This is like 15 years old, but there's this sentence in there that has just stuck in my mind. And he says, he's just talking about legal services, but he says the poor are always bumping up against sharp legal objects. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say the same thing for financial. The poor are always bumping up against sharp financial objects, right? There's the, the, we don't, I don't think fully understand what it's like to have a, a bill come due and you have no cushion, right? That sets off, like you said, a cascade of very sharp consequences, right? Um, and huge interest rates and the loss of friends and loved ones and jobs and all sorts of things that, um, you know, are, are sharp and consequential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if it's avoidable, I mean, look, there are some, mm-hmm. obviously there are some things in life that are not avoidable. Right. But to me, what's what makes it um, so vital to, to for people to think about and talk about and with the assistance of people like you who come up with these ideas that are important and interesting mm-hmm. is when those things are avoidable mm-hmm. it is to, to sort of stand there and not avoid them right. is is tragic and bizarre and and right. and counterproductive right. yeah i think there is um uh and and i think there's both a true concern about the impact of say second chances on personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then there is a cult of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the latter is this belief, which is so firm in kind of punishment for bad choices mm-hmm. and rewards for good choices that it's willing to just go down with a ship. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I believe so strongly in personal responsibility that I will choose this scheme of regulation or non-regulation that actually makes us all worse off. I would rather suffer 
than that your lack of responsibility go unpunished, right? And that yeah, is that is cultish, right? Yeah, Whereas, yeah. Uh, but well, but you do have to be concerned with these things, right? About mm-hmm. uh, the unintended consequences of insurance. Mm-hmm. Anytime well, someone insures anything, there's going to be moral hazard, yeah. right? Well, it's funny that you say that because um, during the the TARP debates, um, a lot of the justification for TARP was that that we're going to help underwater homeowners, people who are. Right. In underwater and go, about to go bankrupt and lose their home because of foreclosures. And the, the selling point was we're going to help these people. And the argument was, and it was a strong one that essentially made it that none of this, none of these funds went to that was moral hazard. Yep. If I help my neighbor, then he's, we're, we're letting him make these risks, but not to mention at all that all of this money essentially goes to Wall Street and induces such a moral hazard into yeah. the sector, you know. So, so we're much more concerned about moral hazard uh, among our neighbors. The kind of moral mm-hmm. hazard, and it's totally natural. We're concerned mm-hmm. about the kind of moral hazard that is most intuitively obvious to us, mm-hmm. which is the kind that we can um, that we can see ourselves falling into, right? Yeah. That I can see that if suddenly I get a hundred thousand dollar check. Yeah. Which is equivalent, you know, to having some of the loan forgiven or whatever. Yeah. That, it's that, not that fair. may, I may yeah. take more risks in the future. Yeah. People may, or I, or at least, you know, I was responsible enough to keep paying each month. Why should I be treated differently? Right. And the result of that kind of thinking is a bunch of foreclosures on your block. Yeah. And then your house is worth a lot less. So everybody loses. Yeah. And the trick is to get the right amount of kind of social gain without too much loss from moral hazard, right? Yeah. It's a balancing act. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I, and I actually think this this idea um, should appeal to sort of Adam Smith, conservatives, Milton Friedman. That's you, Joe. And liberals. Be- <laughs> <laughs> because I think, I mean, we're not talking about welfare or handouts. <laughs> You're just so awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, if you look at uh, Muhammad Yunus, right, with microcredit, um, the yeah. Cato Institute gave him this huge award because this is basically giving the poor a chance to be capitalistic entrepreneurs and pull themselves out of poverty, right? This is this was the this is the conservative microcredit is the conservative solution to poverty. It's been labeled that a lot of conservatives have backed Muhammad Yunus. He's gotten the Nobel Prize, but also you know a lot of accolades from the conservative community. This is no different. So the and this is the idea, right? That if credit is more universally available, mm-hmm. we create a nation of more and more risk takers, mm-hmm. right? And that can obviously go too far, mm-hmm. right? But if you have a huge portion of the population with no access to credit at all, how can any of them ever take any risk, no matter how good their idea is? And that's just right. leaving a huge portion of the country behind right. and screwing us all over. Right. Yeah, because yeah. it, it's like there's the avoiding devastation layer. But above that, there's the, okay, haven't been devastated, but <laughs> but I'm also kind of locked in place. Yes. Like right. I'm frozen. I yeah. can't go do that new and interesting idea that I have. Right. And some people who do those new and interesting things that wouldn't work out, but for some they would. Yeah. And this is why, like I remember being at this thing in Portland, Oregon, this was years ago, and um. It, we were there was some legal thing i was there as a law professor i can't remember what the 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 the, the event was billed as sort of an innovation mm-hmm. law and innovation type stuff yeah and and uh, and i was there as an ip person i guess and so but someone asked something about well what's you know what about things that aren't ip related in terms of legal infrastructure for innovation and I said, and again, this was years ago, um, and I said, well, to me, the one of the single most important things you could do for innovation um, is move to a single payer healthcare system. And, you know, when among the audience members who didn't die instantly of a heart attack, <laughs> um, they, they were they were looking at me like, what is he talking about? And I said, well, just think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't have and what I meant by single payer is how do you get to a place where you don't get health insurance through your job? Mm-hmm. 
That's right. really what I right. was right. so that you can afford. Yeah, go ahead. So Public that option. so that yeah. you can get up and leave. Right. Yeah. If you and don't take a like risk. your job, you yeah. don't yes. have to. Yes. You don't have to take the risk of my family could get sick and I could yeah. be unable to help them and blah blah blah. Instead, you'd say, well, I could leave this job to start my own company, or I could leave that job to go to that other mm-hmm. job because I don't need to worry about the health insurance mm-hmm. and the amount and the amount of risk not being taken by entrepreneurs yeah. with like, fantastic ideas mm-hmm. because they're afraid to lose their health insurance is crazy. Yeah. Right, it's right. worth leaving all that cash on the table as yeah. a culture mm-hmm. by refusing to de-link mm-hmm. insurance, health insurance from jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, to me, it's the same, it's part mm-hmm. of the same conversation. Yeah. yeah. Like how do you unleash people's creative individual mm-hmm. initiative because you have to deal with some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. we, um, I don't, I don't know if we're done talking about this. We we, yeah. we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. I think and I want to talk about something else. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we better move on to it then. Because um, we, we, we have one piece of viewer mail too. I think. Oh. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, Marissa. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you a hypothetical. I just want to get your reaction to this. Okay. Suppose you're driving down the road. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new kicking dog. And okay. uh, and and you pass a police officer with a little radar gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and you're a nice person, mm-hmm. yeah. right? I um, think so. We don't know yet. No. Well, we know about we we know about you, Joe. <laughs> you and and you see other people coming the other way. Uh, do you flash your lights to let them know that the should you flash your lights to let them know that there's Always. a speed trap? Always. I learned that in high school and I've I, done I it knew ever that I liked you a lot. Since, yep. Yep. Ever since I always flash mm-hmm. my lights. Really? And sometimes people are like, What? What are you saying? But like that was like where I grew up, like common courtesy. It's just common it's just common, it decency. common decency. It is common you flash decency. Your light. I, I couldn't it agree with you more. It's the least you can do. It is it, it, it would be the near least. I think it's near inhuman not to do it. Don't it's, you don't yes, you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we should be de- disbarred. Anyone who any lawyer who's not doing it. <laughs> hey wait a minute. <laughs> Uh, no, I, okay. and when have I you started asked, flashing your lights since we started talking <laughs> well, about no, this show? Because I haven't come across an opportunity yeah, to do but, so. Yeah, um, but but I actually don't recall ever having done it. Um, oh. And I've certainly seen police with radar guns, mm-hmm. but I I don't you can't remember. recall feeling bothered to warn others of that. Though <laughs> it's well, custom, maybe it's what custom. Maybe it's well, where you're from. Part it's custom, but also I feel like there's um, so one issue is, and we identified that I identified this when Christian and I first talked about this topic. So I par- big topic I, on the show, by the way. This will <laughs> be the third or fourth episode in a row where it's come up. Um, <laughs> the, but I, but I, this is the, this is the nation's leading speed trap yeah. law podcast. podcast. Yeah. Yes. yeah, but I, I believe that it is actually not effective to do it during daylight. Like it is actually not visible. Joe now, doesn't Christian, think that you can see lights during the day. <laughs> it's kind of like. Uh, <laughs> And they may not. A little bit like a kid when they cover their eyes and they think everybody else has disappeared. (laughs) They may not, but you you give you throw that kindness into the universe, and if it's picked up, it's picked up. That's interesting about it. Beautifully said. Well, so here's the real thing, though. So we we are interested not just in speed trap courtesy, which Mm -hmm. I think is clear. Yes, you know I think that's obvious. Although Joe and I continue to have arguments about it. We're so we actually talked about a case uh, a couple of weeks ago and continued last week. Um. I, these cases are going to get big, by the way. Yeah. Mm. Big cases coming okay. up. Where somebody flashes their lights and they are pulled over and charged <gasps> with obstruction of justice. What? And it turns out... And <laughs> oh, it, I yes. wish, we could, show, uh, wish we could show listeners the look on Marissa's face. Uh, it, it turns out... Uh, and, and so uh, the, the court hears wow. the case and, and decides that the guy had a First Amendment right to flashlights. No joke. No, no. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Yeah. 
I was much more hesitant to um, acknowledge yes. such an idea. And it turns out there's some very <laughs> interesting mean, law. About I should be this. honest. I don't know anything about the First Amendment, but that seems totally legit. Yeah, but everybody, I think everybody can have an opinion about yeah, speed trap that's law. True. Okay. I yeah. mean, I think sure. anyone yeah. learn it in the law, that's and some crazy. of those opinions will be right. Yeah, as we've established. <laughs> I, I think that's right. Um, and 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 so it turns out that the earliest speed trap cases, these are cases adjudicating the legality of warning others of a speed trap, speed trap. Wow. Go back to 19... Was it 1907 in England? Really? So there's a canon of speed oh, yeah. trap cases. Oh, speed yep. trap law. In fact, wow. I may write the first speed trap law restatement. You need to. I think... <laughs> Who are the big... Sco- I mean, is like Justice Holmes touching this? Are we talking about Scalia? Well, yeah. we're not quite yet, but okay. you know, we're, you know, maybe... Traffic may- court judges. Scott's yeah. 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 Do you know wow. that I am distantly related to Oliver Wendell Holmes? Apparently. Wow. Really? Apparently. That is amazing. Apparently. Also, John Cougar Mellencamp. Wow. Fascinating. I think the two of them are also related. Wow. But of course, we're all related. But let me let me tell you this. Okay. So in addition to these old cases, we're not going to get back into it. I this would week. be rather. I would rather be related to Louis Brandeis than. Yeah, me too. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Well, I don't know. Why? Because you'd be related to me if you were related to Holmes. <laughs> no, that, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm, we could very well be related. But I'm gonna. Can I read from a case? You can. Yeah. Okay, and this is very brief. This is very brief. This is another speed trap law case. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, this is the case of uh, City of Warrensville Heights versus Wason. They have all these. Oh, W-A-S-O- I haven't heard this one yet. W-A-S-O-N. How do you pronounce that? Uh, I don't. Wazen? Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> are you ready for this? I am. Are you ready? What year was it? You got to tell me what year it I don't. I, I just, I, I have it in my notes app, and I, okay. I did this last week, and I forgot to mention this oh, case okay. because we got so embroiled. Um, in the, in this area, because I, I think everybody's talking about this now. Oh, yeah. it's all over. So yeah. all the kids are talking. About. Yeah. Um, and this is this is the last, and this I think was a concurrence or a, no, this was a dissent. No, this is a dissent. Okay, because it's the last line. This is from a dissent in a speed trap law case because okay. no one can agree on these. Yeah, very controversial. Totally. Emmanuel Kant's categorical imperative, <laughs> comma. <laughs> Talk about launching the big gun. Oh, this is good. a speed trap case. Good. Okay. Should I, should I, should good. I start keep, again? Keep, keep, yeah, start Emmanuel again. Kant's categorical <laughs> imperative, charging all people with the duty to conduct themselves so that they might will their conduct universal, should be a requirement of good citizenship. Totally. Now, you and I... John are, Rawls, too. You, you and I are on... Yeah. We're, we're, we're in yes. total agreement on this, yes. right? Yeah. I'm not yeah. talking about Joe over there. Okay. <laughs> it, was cl- it was clearly transgressed by the defendant here and constitutes an act inimical to the enforcement of the law, which should not be condoned. For these reasons, therefore, I must respectfully dissent from the majority opinion I would affirm. Now, what's interesting about that, this guy takes Kant's uh, categorical imperative to require not to flash the lights because to do so interferes with the enforcement of the law. So what we have here, and this is, we're we're not going to be able to cover everything. We've gotten a little bit of feedback from a listener, uh, Barbara, no idea who she is, never met her, okay. uh, uh, who says that uh, we've missed something big here. But we'll, we'll get to that another time okay. in, in terms of these distinctions about whether the person was already breaking the law or not, all this stuff, right? Can but I what just- we see in this case, let me just finish this, Joe. Okay. Let me just finish this. Speed trap law has now taken on another layer because what we have is the citation to Immanuel Kant. Mm. Very and one and, and seeing that citation makes one realize that in this area of the law, we have the collision Right, a headlong collision between common decency and common bonds of law. Wow, mm. I mean, what does one do with that? Mm. It's it's like it's like speed trap law is the atom smasher. 
of of uh, of uh, of a common. It's ethic. the super collider. It's the superconducting yeah. super collider. Yeah. I bet you this breaks down along political lines, right? Because I think it depends on what you, how you feel about the law. And, and how you feel about morality within the law, right? Is yep. law morality? And I would say absolutely not, right? Law is so much smaller <laughs> than morality. Morality is so much greater. And anarchy is sometimes more moral than, um, you know, law abidedness. Right. And so this is just humanity versus the law. So and you're, think, you're HLA heart over here. Yeah. Yeah. The law part, and morals do not, uh, are only coincidentally aligned right, right. occasionally. I insist on my right to put, on the table that I'm pounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because Christians had the floor for quite some time, uh, I I just want to get out there. The m- one of my one of the important parts of this discussion to me is the notion that what I what I like about um, flashing the lights um, or some other hypos that Christian and I have talked about in the past is I like the the idea of finding a way to signal to a person i want you to make a better choice about mm-hmm. whether you're following the law or not mm-hmm. and that's helpful right, right. i mean it's a way the- to be helpful to someone be, by respecting and by hoping that they will make a good choice yeah, I mean, even to- though we all know that what's really going on is you're flashing your lights to say you know speed away brother but just <laughs> speed just speed, speed away brother just just hit the brakes for right now. That's yeah. why for you were doing it. Yes. Of course. That's what everybody does, Joe. Well, that's, I don't, that's common decency. I don't actually recall having done it, so it can't be why I was doing it. Yeah. I, I am a frequent ticket collector for speeding. Really? Yes. And it's not because I speed. It is because I am a terrible driver, and I forget that I'm driving often. I'm Oof. often in a situation where... No, we're I'm not going to be able to air this. On a highway. <laughs> this happened to me in Utah. I'm on a highway, and... I passed my exit by 30 minutes. And by the time I came to, no, I don't know where I was, but by the time I came to, I was 30 minutes south on the highway. And I do this all the time. Like, I will come to and I'll be like, wait, what am I doing? I'm driving. I'm disturbed by the phrase come to. Come to. Uh Yeah, it is. I've I've inherited from my dad. Is your name Jason Bourne? No. I remember my dad would do this. Like, you'd be talking to him and then he would just go, like, go into space and you just wait for him to come back because he just clearly wasn't there and I am wow. turning into him. Wow. It's like a concussion wow. or an epileptic seizure, but don't, don't you say can't, that. We can't air can't, that because they'll take your license away. You can't. Yeah, it's not actually though. No, okay. Your this eyes not, are on yeah, the road. Okay. Your hands are at 10 and 2. Your mind is just in some fantasy world. Well, part of it is. But no. part of it is obviously not because yeah, it's, you're it's still automatic. Here. I, yeah, no, I don't get in accidents. I, I think I have yeah. the perfect way to sum this up. Oh, nice. I think I do. Okay. What Marissa is saying, and I think I pronounced that correctly, yes. did I not? Okay, yes. so she's driving down the road. She goes, yeah. you know, and she's still driving okay. Right. It's fine. Yeah. From all outward appearances, there's no danger. Totally. Right? No danger. But she's unaware of, like, she, so driving is not the thing anymore. Her mind is otherwise engaged, on, at least where you're going. Your destination out. is out of there, right? Yeah. Then you come back. Yep. You realize you've missed your exit. Yep. You have to drive all the way back. You get back. And what what have you gotten? What did you get on that journey that into the astral plane, away from our, this ordinary existence? You got the idea for postal banking. Totally, That's what you got. Totally. Yeah. My yeah. best ideas well come mm-hmm. while I am not present in my body. They're just – I'm out somewhere just ruminating. And sometimes it's more just fantasy scenarios of me – I mean, not fantasy in the way that it's typically used, but just, oh, what would it be like if I were – 
you know, if I had an island and, you know, just like, like you're saying, like this yeah. Kant thing, just, just, I just take a thought and I take it to its sort of, you know, logical end and see yeah. what I think about it. And, and those are fun. It's just, I wish I was present to enjoy them. <laughs> if we could communicate telepathically, it would be a great journey to take awesome. with it, someone in the like passenger it. seat. It would be awesome. Redefining yeah. the phrase road trip. Yeah, yeah exactly. Boy, I, <laughs> Nice. Exactly. Oh. That was that's good. Viewer mail, or do we not have time? We're going to save yeah, it up for we next don't week. Have time. We're, We're going to save, save it up. Viewer mail for next. We're week. going to save it up, but we got a yeah. we got a wonderful email. I understand. We did. Okay. Well, we're, this, that's just a teaser. If you want to hear viewer mail, <laughs> you got to come back <laughs> tune next in time. Next time. That's yeah. Right. Tune in next time. If you want to send us mail, it's oralargumentpodcast at gmail That's right. We are also oral argument on Twitter. Okay. Um, uh, so you can follow us there. Uh, this has been great. And I, I think, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen next week. Actually, I do know what's going to happen next week. So Marissa, you won't be back next week, but I, I, so. I just think Marissa should come back every week thereafter. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's yeah. do it. All right. Done.